said, as we continue to worship our Lord together, let me now invite you to listen to the preaching of his word with the ears of faith. So please open up your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and reflect on and rely upon the sovereign power of our God who raises the dead. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look at verses 35 to 49. 35 to 49, we'll look at the text and reflect and rely upon the sovereign power of our God who raises the dead. This is our true hope our sure hope, and our blessed hope. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now enable us to see from your word the glory of your wisdom and the majesty of your power. Transform your people by this very same power that we might be confident in hope patient in suffering, enduring in love, and passionate for holiness. Shape and fashion us into the image of our Savior, the man from heaven, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you like epic battles, you will like this one. I'm talking about the showdown between David and Goliath in the valley of Elah. That's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So on one side stood Goliath, this humongous nine-foot-tall seasoned warrior in full armor, and on the other side stood David, a shepherd with zero battle experience, armed with a sling and a stone. The text tells us that Goliath had been mocking the army of Israel the entire day and he had it all figured out in his head how this battle was going to go when he saw David walking towards him. So this was Goliath's plan. Step one, step on the scrawny Israelite boy and turn him into hummus. And step two, victory party. And we know how the story goes, don't we? First, David makes that great confession. 1 Samuel 17 46 to 47, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And then at the very first throw, a stone from David's sling, providentially steered by the hand of God, crushes the forehead of Goliath and he falls down dead. And all the Philistine mockery stops. 1 Samuel 17 verse 11 tells us that all of Israel was dismayed and afraid as Goliath hurled reproach upon reproach on the armies of Israel. He brought them great shame. But one man who was rejected by his own brothers stood in the gap, representing his people, and he crushed the head of his enemy to win the battle for his people and take away their shame and reproach. 
His singular victory became their victory, and he freed them from their dismay and fear. I hope you can hear in that description who the story is really about. But what did Goliath get wrong? You see, by the battle standards of the day, Goliath's assessment of the outcome was reasonable. What Goliath had no knowledge of was David's God. He underestimated the power of God that he could accomplish victory through someone who was insignificant and weak and through a method that was seemingly foolish to some and a stumbling block to others. See, Goliath's assessment may have been reasonable from an earthly perspective, but it was a godless perspective. Now, when the Apostle Paul heard that some members at the church at Corinth were denying the resurrection of believers from the dead and were sinning as a result, he judged their thinking to be godless. He says of them in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Like Goliath, they were underestimating God's power when it came to this result of Christ's work. You see, they had no problem with Jesus' resurrection. Just like the Philistines who had heard about God bringing His people across the Red Sea, they had no problem with that. But this, come on, a shepherd boy against the Philistine champion? Be realistic. In the same way for these Corinthians, it was the resurrection of the body of believers. And yet these very same Corinthians claimed to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And they couldn't see that one followed from the other. You see, these Corinthians had grown up in a culture that embraced a philosophy that taught a very low view of the body. They thought that what ultimately mattered was the spirit of a person. Of a person. The body had an expiry date, so why, why bother? What you did with your body was of no great consequence or, or significance. The body was seen as a, as a prison house of the soul. You know, that part of you that you would eventually discard at, at death. And so the goal was to escape the body and all its lusts and its weaknesses. But now that the Corinthians had become Christians, they unfortunately continued to think about the body with those very same cultural lenses instead of thinking about the body with scriptural lenses. They thought, well, yes, now in Christ our, our spirits have, have been saved. God has given us a new heart. We have the Spirit who dwells in us. Look at all our spiritual gifts. We're spiritual people. It doesn't get any better than this. We have arrived, they thought. And so the resurrection of the bodies of believers would have sounded strange and perhaps even pointless to them. In Acts 17, verse 32, when Paul finds himself surrounded by Greek philosophers and he speaks of the resurrection, we are told that some mocked him. They made fun of him. They derided him. This is not an intellectual, they said. This is an idiot, a babbler, they called him. Beloved, I wonder, when you read certain texts, do you accept certain commands only because, culturally speaking, they make sense to you? But when you read other commands, you struggle to believe them and obey them because, from a cultural standpoint, they don't make sense to you. Is that how you approach the Word? We shouldn't make the mistake that Goliath did. 
don't make the mistake that these Corinthians did. Remember, we are called to the obedience of faith. God is at work through us and in us through faith in the gospel of His Son. Now, one of the things that struck me as I, as I read this passage is that Paul really knows the Corinthians well. After 34 verses of talking about the centrality of the resurrection in the gospel, after talking about the importance of the resurrection for our faith and the benefits of the resurrection for the believer, after all of that, Paul knows that at the heart of that claim that some of these members were making that there is no resurrection of the dead, he knew that at the heart of that claim was a cultural, godless understanding of the resurrection of the body. And so in this passage, he addresses the real questions that they were not asking. And he answers them in a way similar to how Jesus answered the Sadducees who denied the resurrection in Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, Paul has already exhorted the Corinthians to think Christianly and consistently about the resurrection. Because of the gospel, we have a sure hope. But in this passage, he gives us a glimpse of what that hope will look like when it is realized. It's not the culture that ought to shape our hope, our expectations, but Christ himself. And there are two lessons he wants the Corinthians to learn. Number one, God in his sovereign power raises the dead. That's straightforward. God in His sovereign power raises the dead. And number two, our resurrected bodies will be just like Jesus' resurrection body. Our resurrection body will be just like Jesus' resurrection body. And these two truths are really the answers to the questions that Paul believes are lurking in the minds of certain skeptical members. So look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? In other words, how is this possible? In what way, by what means are the dead raised? In Paul's mind, if you claim to know the God of the Bible and if you really knew God, you wouldn't ask this question. So Acts 26 verse 8, Paul says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You ought to expect that. Now here's the second question. With what kind of body do they come? Now, you have to understand why, for these people, this was an absurd idea. Yeah, right, we will rise from the dead. What is that going to look like? You know, you can imagine some of these Corinthians saying, well, you know, my uncle Turpus, well, he died five years ago. Things decompose, you know. He's probably inside some worm right now. And then a bird probably ate that worm. And who knows what ate that bird. Stuff disintegrates into molecules and finds its way into other things. Uh, you're saying the dead are raised? Well, what exactly is going to be raised? My friend Gaius had half his face chopped off by the Romans. And then his body was on the battlefield for days before we found him. And when we did find him, wild dogs had chewed off both his arms. 
And so when Gaius ra rises up, is he going to rise up faceless and armless? Are we going to have a walking dead zombie situation on our hands? The dead will rise, the dead will rise. I don't want to see the dead rising, man. It sounds awful and distasteful. So you can see why people mock this idea. Who would even want that? And this is how Paul responds to their worldly thinking. Look at verse 36. You foolish person. You foolish person. You fool, he says. And here's what he means by that. He's not making a comment on their intellect or even their imagination or lack of it. He's using the word in the way the Old Testament uses that word. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, when you read the book of Proverbs, the fool is the one who mocks God. He does not fear God. He has no regard for God and his word. He does not have a covenant relationship with God. But the wise man, on the other hand, fears God and trusts God. He's in a covenant relationship with the Lord and he strives to walk in his ways. What Paul seems to be saying to this select group of resurrection deniers in the church who were sinning, he's saying what he has already said in verse 34, for some have no knowledge of God. Paul says, have you seen the way God creates things? Why would you think that his new creation work would be like that? Why are you walking in spiritual ignorance? And so Paul then gives them an analogy from nature to help them understand that even on the natural level, God has made this known to us through creation. Look at the text. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul says when you look at the world that God has made, how do plants grow? Well, it begins with the sowing of a seed. And what you sow does not sprout to life unless it first dies. Remember, this is an analogy. Paul is not giving a botany lecture for you to argue, well, technically, I don't know, is the seed really dead? It's an analogy. He's saying you take that little thing, that weak thing, and you put it in the ground and you bury it, it shrivels up, gives you the appearance of death, and then at the right time, the shoot pops out of the ground. It comes to life. Friends, the point is that death precedes life. You go through death to enter life. There is life after death, says Paul, eternal life. Uh, he wants these Corinthians to know that though they have entered into eternal life in the now, because of their new birth, there's more. There's yet to come. And death does not have the last word. But for the Christian, it's a prelude to the fullness of eternal life to something unimaginably better. Beloved, preach this truth to your hearts every day so that you won't fear death but resolve to love and serve your Savior with zeal. The way Paul speaks about this is similar to how Jesus spoke of his own death. Listen to this, John 12, 23 to 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ is the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep, who have died. Just as he was raised, so too upon his return, the dead in Christ will rise. Make no mistake, they will receive their own bodies, their own bodies. But remember what these skeptics were probably thinking. They were thinking, that's just gross. I mean, why would I want a stinking, rotting, shriveled body? And Paul says, if you really paid attention to God's wonderful world, you wouldn't think like this. Look at verses 37 to 38. And what you sow, underline this, what you sow is not the body that is to be. You see that? It is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. The word bare means naked, unclothed. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. You see, God in his sovereign power and wisdom is the one who determines how each plant, how each tree will look like. And he says it will be according to its seed, according to his, its kind. Paul is using the language of Genesis 1. On the third day, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Paul says, look at the seed that goes into the ground. And then take a close look at the plant that grows from it. Do they look the same to you? No. Look at the mango seed and the mango tree. Do they look the same? No. Look at a grain of wheat and look at the harvest. What you sow is not the body that is to be. What goes into the ground is naked and unclothed, a mere seed. What comes out is not unclothed, but it is clothed with beauty. And yet, while the plant may look different from the seed, there is an organic unity between the seed and the plant body. Beloved, when you die, listen carefully, when you die and Jesus comes back and raises you from the dead, I promise you, what will come out of your, out of your grave will not be a goat or a chimpanzee. It will be you. And yet your resurrected body will be different to behold. And whatever you think your resurrection body is going to look like, I've got news for you, it will be a masterpiece by the master designer himself. So you don't have to worry about Christians who were drowned or burned or blown up. You don't have to worry about dissipated molecules. God in his great power will give you a body as he has chosen and it will be your body. And just as we read in Genesis 1 that God spoke and it was so, so it will be at the resurrection of the dead. A time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of Christ and they will rise with their new resurrected bodies. This is why Christians have historically buried their dead. This is why we bury our dead. It's a picture of hope. It's a time of sowing. We sow and then we wait for the harvest. We've seen the first fruits. We're waiting. Every burial for the Christian is filled with hope. We believe that our bodies are not just shells for our souls, 
They are a part of our personhood made in the image of God. Beloved, God will determine what kind of resurrection body we will receive. But we should not make the mistake of thinking that our resurrection human body in the future will be the same as our human body in the present. Let's not make the mistake, that mistake. Look at verses 39 to 41. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans. Well, thank God for that. We have two legs, not four or eight. Another for animals. All kinds of animals. Some of these creatures are covered in fur. Some have hooves. Another for birds. They have wings. God gave them bodies suitable for flight. And another for fish. They have gills to breathe underwater. You get the point. There are different kinds of, of bodies. God has designed his creatures with different kinds of flesh. Bodies with different characteristics to live in different habitats. But those are not the only kind. These are all earthly bodies. Look at verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Paul now compares things on earth, like humans and animals and birds, to things in the heavens, like the planets and the stars. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Each has its own glory. Friends, the glory of a created thing is its splendor and beauty. But that glory is not independent of God. See, God created the sun to be bright and to give light and to give heat. And so when the sun rises and shines and warms the earth, it is glorious. It is doing what God created it to do. So here's the big point. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. While we should expect that our new resurrection bodies will be our resurrection bodies, we should also remember that it will have a different glory. These bodies will be glorified, perfect, free from sin and weakness. It will be a body suited to the age to come, to the habitat of the new earth, a heavenly body. See, the glory of our resurrected bodies will be like the glory of the stars in the heaven. It will far outstrip the glory of our earthly bodies. You know, Daniel describes this. Daniel talks about the glory of resurrected believers in exactly this way. Daniel 12, 2-3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And listen to this. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Different kind of glory. Beloved, in the resurrection there will be an aspect of continuity with our existing human bodies, but there will also be some discontinuity. See, our resurrection bodies will be glorified, they will be different. Now, in what ways will it be different or better? In what ways will it be transformed? Look at verses 42 to 44. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
the body that is sown. So Paul's still using that seed metaphor for the body. The body that is sown or buried is perishable. We know what we mean by perishable goods. It means it's subject to decay or corruption. But when it is raised, it will be raised imperishable. It will be enduring. Beloved, if you're suffering from a bodily illness and you're receiving treatment of some kind, but the most that you're experiencing is temporary relief, let this truth give you hope. You know, a time is coming when your body will be completely restored to perfect health. Jesus promises you that in the resurrection. No more cancer, no more diabetes, no more cataract, joint aches, ovarian cysts, kidney failures. Perfect health. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What Paul means by dishonor is the ignominy or the baseness of death, sordid. There's nothing dignified about death. Death is the result of our sin, the result of our dishonorable actions towards the God who created us for glorious purposes. But our resurrection bodies will no longer be lowly, but be raised with the splendor and the dignity of immortality. Think about how this would have encouraged those who were being persecuted for Christ. Brothers, be bold in your obedience. Don't fear the fury of the world. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can destroy the body. Why? Because we know the one who will give us an immortal one. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Lowly body, glorious body. How will He do this? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Look at the next verse. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. In this age, our bodies are subject to all kinds of wear and tear, disease, deformity, weariness, and finally death. But we also struggle with indwelling sin, don't we? Our new resurrection bodies will be raised by the very same power that raised Jesus' body from the dead. And we will know no more sin, sickness, or death. Along with our resurrection bodies, God will transform this earth into a new earth. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul speaks about our future glory, he says that at that time, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even this morning we heard of hurricanes and Super typhoons. Creation has been groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's Romans 8, 21 to 23. Look at verse 44. 
It is sown a natural body, natural meaning a physical body belonging to this age, the age that is passing away, and it is raised a spiritual body. Now, spiritual does not mean immaterial, as though we will have some sort of ghostly uh, body. No, a spiritual body is still a physical body. That's what it means to be human. A spiritual body means it is animated, made alive by the spirit. The difference between the natural and the spiritual is the difference between ordinary human life in the now versus life in the spirit with new resurrection bodies in the new earth then. And friends, that is only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus himself. If these Corinthians were going to cast off cultural thinking, they were going to have to take a closer look at Jesus himself, at his resurrection body. They, were having, they would have to look at what Christ has done. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus' resurrection tells us what our bodies will look like. Look at verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now at this point in the argument, this should be pretty obvious. This is why it should be read as a statement of fact. The New King James Version reads, There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And Paul grounds this statement in Scripture. Look at verse 45. Thus is it, it is written, in other words, here's why we can be confident of this logical progression. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul, once again, back in Genesis, quoting Genesis 2, verse 7, where Moses tells us about how God created the first man, Adam. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Adam is called the man of dust because he is made from the ground. He is off this earth. That's what the Hebrew word Adam means. He is made from the Adama, the ground. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Paul then contrasts Adam with Christ. Romans 5 says that Adam is a type of the one to come. He points us forward to Jesus. And notice the contrast. Christ is called the last Adam. The word for last is eschatos. That's where we get the word eschatology, the end times, study of the end times. This is the last Adam. The last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So Adam is given life, natural life in this age. Christ gives us eternal life, life that belongs to the age to come. He gives us spiritual life. And how does he do that? By rising from the dead and ascending into heaven and sending us his spirit, causing us to be born again. But that gift of the indwelling spirit, see Paul wants these gift-happy, gift-chasing Corinthians to know that gift of the indwelling spirit is just the inauguration of the new creation. The consummation is yet to come. We still await the redemption of our bodies. But he has already made this argument, hasn't he? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus said this in John 6 verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. You see that progression? And so Paul's aim here is to not only get these skeptical Corinthians to see the glory and the power of God, but also to ground their hope in Christ. Because of Christ, he wants them to live in that hope, to labor in that hope, to pursue love and unity and holiness in that hope. There is life beyond the grave. Our best life is yet to come. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but, look at verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. You see, there is an order that we need to be aware of in redemptive history. First creation, then comes new creation. First the natural, then the spiritual. If we have put our trust in Christ, then as that old hymn goes, heaven has come down and glory has filled our souls. We are citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. As heavenly people, we await our heavenly spiritual bodies. Look at verses 47 to 48. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, that's Adam. The second man is from heaven, that's Christ, the God-man, truly God and truly man, who in his glorified physical body is in heaven right now. Notice those contrasts and think about where these men are from, what they represent, and the differences in the destinies of those they represent. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. If you are in Adam, you participate in his humanity. You are a sinner by nature and by choice, and in Adam all die. Romans 5, 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But if you're in Christ, you participate in His humanity, the new humanity, resurrected humanity, the new creation that He has secured by His own resurrection from the dead. Or as one author put it, just as we have been marked by the earthly realm through our Adamic origin, thanks to Christ, we will be marked by the heavenly realm through our resurrection from the dead. You see, in the new creation, humanity will be Christ-shaped. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a worshiper of Jesus Christ, then according to God's word that you have just heard, you are living the way of Adam, the man of dust. And this way is a life that Scripture describes as hostile to God. Because of Adam's disobedience, we have all inherited his sinful nature, a nature that stands opposed to God's ways and his purposes. The Bible says that no one seeks God. We have all turned away from Him and to our own ways. We are fools when it comes to understanding God's plans and purposes for us. And because of this, God stands over sinners in judgment. And that means that apart from Jesus Christ, sinners have no hope and will be eternally condemned. Now you may think of yourself as a good person, but friend, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself because this is God's world. He created you 
and you have not obeyed him. His assessment is the only assessment that matters. If you want evidence that what the Bible says about death entering into the world because of sin, just consider your own body. Our bodies are growing weaker and frailer as the years roll on. We are susceptible to disease and accidents. You can't escape death no matter how many booster shots you take. Now, perhaps there are things that you could do 10 years ago that you can't do anymore because you don't have the strength or energy to. Our bodies are already started exhibiting signs of decay and perishing. And one day our loved ones will bury us like that seed in the ground. Friend, consider the kindness of God to you. Consider his kindness, the fact that you're hearing God's word being spoken to you today. Don't harden your heart, but listen. You have offended a holy God, but God in his great mercy and love sent his son Jesus who came into our world and he assumed a humanity just like ours, except without sin, so that he could become our representative and our savior. He lived a perfectly obedient life, a life that we could not have lived, and then he died on the cross for our sins, offering his body as a sacrifice of atonement. Friends, this means that he took God's judgment for our sins on himself, and he paid our debt so that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. And then he rose from the dead with a new resurrection body in order to give eternal life to all those who repent of their sins and put their trust in him. This is the message of Christianity. This is the good news of Jesus. You see, Christians are not good people. Uh, whoever told you that is lying. Christians are not good people. We are bad people who have had their eyes opened by God to see that God's assessment of us is true. We're sinners. We've sinned against the holy God. We do deserve hell. But because of the undeserving grace of God that he has demonstrated in the sending of his son, because of his death and resurrection, we have been given new hearts by the power of this God who raises the dead. Therefore, having come to know this God, and having been known by him, now that we have received the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, now that we have come to know his love and his wisdom and his exceedingly great power, we plead with you. And we plead with all men and women everywhere. We plead with you to turn away from your sins and turn away from your pride and your self-sufficiency and turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. Put your faith in his saving death. There is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you will stand before God on the day of judgment and be condemned. But if you put your trust in Jesus, you will be raised to eternal life. You will be given a new resurrection body, imperishable and immortal. That is a blessing that he gives to those who love him and long for his appearing. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, our great hope is that Jesus will not only transform our hearts, but also our bodies. Our bodies will be just like his. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
See, Adam was made in the image of God in his likeness. He was a living, breathing representation of his maker, created to speak of his goodness and exercise loving rule or dominion over the earth. Adam was to spread God's glory through producing many other image bearers. But Adam failed in his calling and the image of God was not lost, but marred, distorted. Every human born after that bears Adam's marred image. We see that in Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. But now that we are in Christ, that distorted image, that distorted likeness is being renewed. It's being transformed. See, God is working on our hearts, our character to make us more like Jesus. Uh, we see this in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Christians must put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created, listen to this, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when we think of this work of image restoration, we usually think about our sanctification. But this image restoration also involves our physical bodies, which will take place at the resurrection. Our bodies will be just like Jesus. We will bear the image of the man from heaven, the text says. Now, we don't have a lot to go on when it comes to the specifics of the resurrection body. We do get some glimpses of what that might look like when we read the Gospels. When Luke speaks of the resurrected body of Jesus, he tells us that Jesus at first was not easily recognizable. When he walked along with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they could not recognize him until Luke 24, 31, in the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened to recognize him. So you can see there was this aspect of discontinuity between the two. You see that even in John's gospel when he appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. She didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. John 20 verse 15. She didn't recognize him until he made himself known and called her name. But there was also an aspect of continuity. Luke tells us that Jesus had a physical body. Jesus said in Luke 24, 39, Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he said, What's in your fridge? Can you imagine that? He said, Do you have anything here to eat? Luke 24, 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate before them. Apparently, Jesus in his new resurrection body still had a thing for fish. In John 21, he has breakfast with his disciples by the sea. This time, not broiled fish, but charcoal fish. The same John who recorded this also says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, to see him, to behold him in his glory is to be changed. Isn't this what's happening now as we behold his glory in his word? 
the Spirit changes us, transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And one day, that transformation will be complete. That project will be complete. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Friends, the point of this passage is not, not just to put flesh and bones on our hope, but it's meant to enable and encourage us to pursue what's coming. Think about this. If what's coming is honorable and pure and Christ-like, then we ought to pursue Christ-likeness now. We ought to walk according to the wisdom of the cross, to abound in the work of the Lord together as we preach the gospel, as we pursue unity together by putting on the mind of Christ, as we discern between godliness and ungodliness, as we flee sexual immorality, as we pursue God-glorifying marriages and singleness and widowhood, as we refuse to identify with the world, as we give up our rights for the sake of building up others, as we guard the distinctions between men and women, as we worship and serve one another in love. Beloved, if you're not pursuing Christ's likeness now, you won't long for what is to come. You cannot hope to be Christ-like then if you're not pursuing Christ's likeness now. If you're not fighting your sin now and overcoming it one battle after the other, you won't long for the day when relief will come. When in our new resurrection bodies we will no longer battle with sin. Are you delighting in the word of Christ? Are the scriptures your meditation day and night? If you don't delight in communing with the Lord now, you won't long for the greater communion then, when we will see him face to face and our bodies will be perfectly suited for a face to face communion with the Lord. What are you doing in preparation for that day? Church, if we're not denying ourselves to love one another, imperfect as that might be, and if we're not inf investing into one another's sanctification, how will we delight in the perfect, loving, eternal fellowship that we will enjoy with our brothers and sisters in the new earth? Beloved, don't have a worldly and foolish perspective like Goliath did, but trust in the gospel. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't underestimate the power of God. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is our great hope. The power that raised Christ and will raise you one day is available to you now to help you overcome your sin, to help you labor in love and glorify God in your bodies. Look to him. Trust in the one who raises the dead. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at what our Savior has accomplished for us. We praise you for our blessed hope in him. Lord, we pray that this hope would spur us on to greater faithfulness and holiness as we long for his return. May our repentance be genuine and our love be sincere. Help us live victorious, sin-overcoming lives in the resurrection power of our Lord. Glorify your name through your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.